for me, it felt like, and, and I, I know this is probably not a very good analogy, but it felt like that, that sensation of having worked on this puzzle for years, and you finally get that last piece and you put it in and you go, ah, oh. and, and it's like, this, this is what I needed. I needed to find that connection. Who am I? 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 This is Who Am I Really? A podcast about adoptees that have located and connected with their biological family members. I'm Damon Davis, and you're about to meet Cindy, who lives outside of Sacramento, California. Cindy and her sister were placed in foster care where they learned to protect themselves and be tough. Cindy's search started with an abundance of identifiable information thanks to her adoptive parents. In reunion, she found a man she truly resembled, was bonded to, but who was forced to cut their relationship again until his final days. Cindy found the pieces that were missing in her personal puzzle and healing that she and many other people involved in her adoption reunion really needed. This is Cindy's journey. Cindy and her sister were seven and nine-year-old foster children when they were adopted by their foster parents. Their home was unique in that their adoptive father was in a wheelchair. Cindy's mom's career was in school nursing. She said that their home was wonderful and she was a bit of a tough little girl once she arrived at their house as she had been moved between a few foster homes before. So I was kind of a a tough little kid once I got there, but my father, who who was both strict but gentle, I will never forget the day that he, he literally popped a wheelie in the hallway when I mouthed off to him and <laughs> came Whoa. after me in the wheelchair. So I, I definitely respected him after that. I was I was not going to be able to maintain my tough foster home kid <laughs> persona for long. So it was really a sort of a middle class, wonderful home upbringing, did the whole thing with Girl Scouts and in school and growing up and, you know, playing with Barbies and the whole thing. It was back in the, back in the day, it was, you know, back in the early 60s. So it's been a while. Can you just expand on your relationship, please, between you and your sister? Are you two biological to each other? No, actually, when I found my birth father, I discovered from him that she was actually my half-sister. Now, when we were in foster homes in, in adoption, we assumed we were sisters, but we were, interestingly enough, our, our you know personalities are very different. Her complexion and physical nature is different than mine. We sound alike because we had the same mother, and so I think there's you know some crossover there, but I didn't know that information until I found my birth father. My sister is actually a half-sister. That's really fascinating. So So you were growing up believing that she was your full sister. Yes. And you found out that your story was even more complex than that. Oh, absolutely. Yes. there There were layers and layers of complexity to my story, which I had no clue about until I actually found my birth father. I had some information because... My adopt, you know, we were older when we were finally adopted, and so we knew that we had come from foster homes. And actually, my birth father 
had come to their home to speak with them and to visit with us briefly because at the time, my adoptive father, you know, back in that day, there there was no internet, there was no way to search. So he literally went through the Los Angeles area phone books trying to locate my birth father because at the time, in order for them to adopt us, they had, had to actually get uh, court permission if the birth parent, you know, could be proven to still be alive, they would have to sign documents for them uh, to go ahead and adopt us. So that was an odd experience because I, I told this story in my book that I recognized him in sort of. I mean, I knew this man, but I didn't know this man. We had been through some pretty abusive situations in foster home, and so I was real hesitant at, you know, the tender age of six or seven and wasn't quite sure what to do with this stranger at the door, but I also sort of knew him. So it was a very weird kind of experience. But from that time, you know, when he visited us briefly, ever since that time in my mind, I told myself I wasn't worth keeping. That that was the, the sort of template that I lived with. Because he, he literally signed us away. You know, and they say that children in their magical thinking years believe, you know, from birth to seven, they believe that they are the magical cause of things. And so I assumed there must have been something wrong with me for them to sign a paper giving us away. When in fact, the situation, as I found out later from him, was he was in no position. Uh, with his current family and his living situation to be able to take on both my sister and myself. And and he didn't want to separate us. And there were circumstances that prevented him from taking us back. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in hindsight, I I recognize the sacrifice that he made at that time. And of course, when I was seven, I didn't know that. Right, right. Yeah. Wow. This is really interesting. So, he was not able to keep custody of you and therefore signed away custody. You were placed in foster care and then eventually adopted. At the time that he signed the document, we were in the last foster home that we would be in because it was that couple who was seeking to adopt us. So he he literally didn't know where we were until my adopted father contacted him and explained our, our backstory and that they were now fostering us and wanted to adopt us. And that's when my birth father came back into the picture briefly to sign the documents for the court, um, allowing them to adopt us. And, you know, the court system, in order for them to adopt us, of course, they still had to go through the courts. And so I'm sure it was the court initiating that process. But my adoptive father, you know, taught me a lot about perseverance and um, having been in a wheelchair and struggled with his own, you know, story and, and health and, and determination to to live in a time when being disabled was, you know, not as, as supported as it is today, he really had to be a, a type of individual that would persevere. And so really admired his, I, I don't know if you're familiar, but, you know, with the Los Angeles phone book back at that time, it was still pretty thick. And so he... <laughs> He had a little bit of information from our history about approximately where my my birth parents would have been, 
And so he, he was like, you know, with a magnifying glass going through the phone book back in the day. Cindy said she was a tough little kid from her experiences in foster care. She alluded to some abuse and harsh situations, so I asked her to share more. She starts off by opening up about how she and her sister landed in foster care in the first place. My birth mother was a waitress in a hotel, and down below the hotel, and um, she was also into drugs and alcohol and didn't didn't really take mothering seriously. At one point, my sister and I were found in a closet by some women in the in the hotel, and my mother had apparently either taken too many drugs or didn't return to the hotel room. And so that's how we ended up in foster care. We went through probably two, three, maybe four foster homes before we landed in the one we eventually were adopted in. The first one was more of a like an orphanage type thing. And one of the memories that really stands out for me is being in the in the orphanage. And of course, they served oatmeal every morning. I absolutely hated oatmeal. It just made me gag. And I wouldn't eat it. And I remember sitting at the table and they said, you're going to sit here all day until you eat that oatmeal. And I literally sat at that table from morning until night without eating that oatmeal. And I was determined. I was absolutely determined not to eat the oatmeal. And so that, you know, that sort of stubborn streak that kind of helped me survive my early childhood, um, kind of lived on (laughs) and still does. My husband would tell you still does, (laughs) but you know, it was the foster home experience. Unfortunately, well, I should say, fortunately, my sister and I were able to stay together. That was the saving grace. Um, She's two years older than I am. She kind of became my mother early on because my, you know, birth mother really wasn't there for us. And so when we went to the foster homes, One of the foster homes, I remember the woman apparently got ill or whatever. We were not there long, and we got passed on to the next one. And so, again, that was sort of a reiterated that sense of you're not worth keeping. You know, no one wants you. Just being passed along, it was like there was no place of home. There was no connection. And so that really didn't establish any level of trust or bonding of any kind. So there was, you know, it was difficult. In one of the homes, there was two older girls, and they were, I don't know, kind of like the the, the mean stepsisters <laughs> in, you know, story of Cinderella or something, because they just, I don't think they wanted little kids in their home. They were probably, you know, early 20s or something. But my sister and I were just sort of, you know, these extra tag-along kids. I don't know if they had us in foster home for the money or what the reason was, but it just, it wasn't a sense of, you know, a loving environment. Mm. So you ended up being in this final foster home, but this is not the mm-hmm. the one that you're referring to, not the loving environment, is it? Correct. There were several others that were not loving. The, the one we ended up in, they genuinely wanted more children, given that my adoptive father was in a wheelchair he actually was in a wheelchair at the time my older adoptive sister was a baby. She was actually born in the hospital 
At the same time, my father from the army had been placed in the hospital and had been paralyzed. So the the trauma for my adoptive mother of, you know, knowing I have this baby, I've got to take care of this man who's, in a, you know, now paralyzed and I want more children. She and my adoptive father went ahead and adopted another little girl. And unfortunately, that little foster child was killed in a horse uh, riding accident. Mm. She'd been thrown from a horse and hit her head and died. Mm. So, you know, the devastation for my adoptive parents to be having these foster child that they thought would be their daughter forever and have her die at the age of 10 was very traumatic. That was that was in probably the, the late 50s. And then it was shortly after that, in the early 60s, that my adoptive parents pursued more children, which was my sister and I. Wow. Yeah, there's a lot going on in that house. That's, yeah, that's yeah. really sad. And then my, that young lady who passed. Yes. And then my older sister, uh, my adoptive sister, she was 16 at the time. And then, of course, my my sister and I were, you know, seven and nine. So how many children lived in your home as you were growing up? There were three of us, my adoptive sister and then the two two of us that were, were in foster care for a minute and then adopted. Cindy had a 17-year-old adopted sister who was really into the horses on the family ranch. Her sister took Cindy riding on their horses and they got along pretty well for their age difference. Cindy's sister, being older and into boys, would sneak out of the house periodically. To keep Cindy quiet, her sister used to bribe her with treats. Carrots, of all things. And Cindy would keep her mouth shut about what she had witnessed. She was initially a, a little hesitant, and I'm sure some of that came from having lost a sister, you know, to the horseback riding accident. And, you know, I'm sure it wasn't all that invested due to her own emotional trauma from that loss. But we we grew very close over the years. In fact, I oftentimes I, I, I sometimes feel closer to her because she was more of a sister type. My the sister I grew up with, the, the one that was two years older than me, became my mom. And so, you know, there was a little bit of a mom thing going on with her. So <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, we 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 got very close over the years. Really and of course, she was out of the home. She, you know, shortly after that, she was out of the home. She went into college and was on her way. So it was mostly Gail and myself that were in the home. So how did you get along with your adoptive mom? We got along fine. She, she was, I'm going to call her a stoic German. I mean, she, she was strict, but she taught us a lot. She wanted us to have lots of good experiences, provided, you know, many opportunities for us to to go on vacations and and be involved in activities and Girl Scouts and most things that kids would be doing that we probably would never have had a chance to do in foster care. And the other thing about my adoptive mother and my father, my adoptive father passed away in 1984, but when I started searching for my birth parents, my adoptive mother was very supportive. It was she was not at all threatened whatsoever. I mean, she was encouraging, and she actually knew that at some point my sister and I, one of us, or at least both of us, maybe, would try to find our birth parents. That's really great to hear because that's not, as you know, always the case. 
That's and, correct. And, yeah. And it can be very, it can be motivating for some adoptees to say, well, I'm definitely doing this now if you don't want me to. Right. But it can also be yeah. disempowering to know that you don't have approval, quote unquote, mm -hmm. to proceed with mm -hmm. a search. It can make you feel like you don't have control of your own life and, and, and it can invalidate your own feelings too, which right. obviously is, yeah. is no good. So that's great to hear mm -hmm. that she was supportive in that way. Growing up, were you a pretty okay in being an adoptee? You know, some adoptees are well-adjusted and others are sort of traumatized by it and it never leaves them and they always think about it. What, can you tell me a little bit about where you fell on the spectrum? I suppose I was somewhat in the middle, and and I say that, you know, in hindsight, very, very early on when I was still with my birth parents, we experienced, or at least my, my birth mother experienced severe trauma in childhood. And so not really having that worked through, that was always an undercurrent that I really didn't name until I was an adult. Um, so there was sort of something off there. and. I was okay being an adoptee because I, I think our adoptive parents made us feel like their own. They never referred to us separately than as part of a member of the family, but we had been old enough to know that we had been adopted. And so I think when you're old enough to know that you've been adopted, there's a, there's always a sense of, well, you know, literally, who am I? Where, where did I come from? What? What's my backstory? What's my history? Why did my parents give us up? Why did that man come to the house and sign a paper saying, I don't want you, which is what my thinking was as a child. And so I think for me, and maybe even for my sister, there was always a sense that we needed to strive just a bit harder, almost, almost to prove ourselves. And I, and I don't think that's uncommon from a lot of adoptees. It's almost like you have to, you know, prove prove at a higher level that you deserve to be here on earth <laughs> because there's that undercurrent of, you know, I'm not worth keeping. And and I think being old enough to, to know that and be aware of that really becomes part of, of who you are as you move forward in life. There's that, that sort of background chatter and wonder of, you know, do I have to prove myself a bit more to to allow myself to to do this task or whatever in, is in front of me, that sort of nagging voice in the background that I think we could live with if we allowed it. Mm -hmm. That is exactly right. Wow. Um, and it's fascinating to hear, you know, that you did sort of straddle the line of, of both, you know, feeling accepted mm -hmm. by your parents who made you feel like you were their own, but also having that, experience of having been an older adoptee that foster care was part of your active memory and you know sort of the questioning then like well where are the people that I did actually come from is it's yes. an impossible thing not to sort of look in the mirror look in the family portrait and think about since Cindy's older sister was adopted with her I wondered if her desire to search for the rest of their biological family came from being placed with one of her birth relatives Cindy shared that her experience with her own daughter was the actual catalytic moment for her. Her daughter was seven, and she was telling Cindy a story from the time when she was five years old. Cindy's daughter seemed to remember everything so clearly from when she was five, but 
Cindy struggled to remember herself at five years old. And it dawned on me that it was like a blank slate for me. I could not remember what happened when I was five. I had no memories of the age of five. And so here was this blank slate, and I'm thinking to myself, why, you know, this void, why can't I remember this? How is it that my daughter knows this memory and I have nothing? So, and in combination with the fact, maybe it was also a trigger that she was seven, and that is the age I was when I was adopted. And so, for my son, who was interesting, nine, and my daughter's seven, those sort of trigger ages that threw me back to that time in my life. And I said, I need to know, if not for my sake, at least for their sake. I, You know, the questions that they, everyone asks along the way, well, is there cancer in your family? Is there, you know, what's the history of heart disease and all this information and things that people have to answer along the way? And you're always reminded, I don't know, I'm adopted. I have no idea, I'm adopted. And, and when my son was born, they asked me, are there twins in your family? Because he was such a big kid. And I said, I don't know, I'm adopted. And so that it, that builds up over time, that unknowing it, it stays with you. And so when you have kids, you want to find out that information for their own history, for their own knowledge. So that is what led me to that. My sister, on the other hand, I don't think she had any interest in, in pursuing. She she really wasn't interested. And and I don't know if that's because she doesn't have kids, so that really wasn't an impetus to, to get her going or anything. And and I think she's she just figured, well, if you're going to do it, that's fine. And she didn't have any interest, it seemed, at the time. That's it's really fascinating that you guys are sort of in these divergent places, and especially with you having two children of your own, I could definitely see how it would be a catalyst. One thing that I'm yeah. kind of curious about was, how was it for you carrying children of your own, knowing that your own mom had done the same for you? Did you have one of those sort of moments of reflection to think, wow, somebody did this with me, and here I am with my own children? Did you, did you reflect on that at all? I suppose I did. I mean, it's been several years. My oldest is 41 now. <laughs> so I don't know that I can remember that far back, right. but I suppose I did. I think I think when I discovered that I was RH negative, and, you know, I I didn't have that, that, those pieces of information. And so there was some anxiety, um, not knowing my own mother's history of birth experience and, and my health history. So so that did come up. It was, but there was really, for me, interestingly enough, there was no emotional desire to find my birth mother. It was more about finding my birth father. And I don't know, at the time, I didn't know why. I couldn't tell you at the time why it was my birth father I wanted to search for. And it was just kind of this, eh, I don't think so, when it came to looking for my birth mother. And I did find out later why that was the case, but mm. it was it was my birth father I was searching for. Gotcha. So it was an emotional connection. Searching for her birth father, Cindy went to the California Department of Motor Vehicles, the DMV. It was 1989, and Cindy said she got her information right before the anti-stalker laws were enacted to prevent the public from accessing people's identifiable information. 
The very public case that helped lock down DMV records was the murder of young actress Rebecca Schaefer. She was 21, and she had been stalked for three years by a young male fan who got her home address information from the DMV, went to her apartment to introduce himself and left. Then he returned and shot her. But Cindy's search happened just before that tragic event. She went into the DMV with the information about her birth father, which her adoptive parents had, her birth mother's name, her birth father's name, and her own original name. She even knew the general location of her birth parents because her adoptive father had tracked down her birth father to a certain geographic area when he found the man in the phone book at the time of Cindy's adoption. On the form, there was a question about why the searcher was looking for the individual of interest. Cindy said, family reunion, which sounded more like her birth father was being invited to an event, not so much like she was attempting adoptee reunion. Not really a lie, but not the super clear truth, she admitted. It was much easier than I thought, but I was also very, very nervous because it could go either way. I mean, I mainly went in the door trying to find out if he was still alive. That's That was my first agenda. Mm-hmm. Is he still alive? And, and you know, if you have a, an ID and if you're you're living in a certain area and they hand you a form and they give you that information, then, oh my gosh, I, I was, I was in shock. I literally was in shock. Yeah. Wow. That's unbelievable. But you, you started with a, quite a wealth of information to give them. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I did. I was fortunate. Not everyone has that information. And because we were older, because he, my birth father, had come to the home, he had given my adoptive parents some background. And and honestly, I was really blessed because he brought, you know, slides, pictures of my sister and I when we were little. And so, you know, it was, it was like, I think the best explanation I can give is it was like, you, you have this puzzle and it's in a box and there's thousands of pieces and you dump the box on the table and here are all these pieces. And then slowly over time, as you're putting some of these pieces together, you get a picture. And that's really what this adoption, birth parent unification thing is all about, is you're putting that puzzle together. You're, you're creating a picture of who you are. And so when he literally brought these pictures of us when we were children, I mean, little babies and, you know, pictures of my birth mother and seeing how my sister looks more like her than I do, and I look like my father, and oh my gosh, you know, all I had was these pictures, these slides, but my my adoptive parents had kept those, and they had kept the information about his name and his location. Mm-hmm. So I had, I had a start. I had a foundation that a lot of other adoptees didn't have. So I look back on that, and I think, oh my gosh, I can't imagine what it would be like to have to start from scratch from nothing. So I so admire people that persevere without that foundation. Yeah. But I had these bits and pieces, these puzzle pieces that could get me started, sort of the frame of the puzzle, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It's always yeah. an advantage to have some pieces already. And you definitely had, you had the corners of the puzzle already. You sort of knew what what a piece of the frame kind of looked like. But I can imagine it was really, really 
fulfilling and validating to have this guy show up with with pictures of you. That's not often the case. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and for him to be willing to share it and and allow yeah. you to see sort of your similarity between your birth mother, between you and your sister and your birth mother, between her and your mother. You know what I mean? Just all of mm-hmm. these interesting ties together. How, what was that meeting like? Wow. It it was it was powerful. It was a little bit scary. I I was definitely not welcome by his current wife. She had they had adopted two girls of their own. So here I was, this ghost from the past, number one, reminding her and my father of my birth mother and their relationship. And she was threatened because she was not at all like my adoptive mother. She was determined not to allow her daughters to find their birth parents. So here I was walking into their home and stirring up all kinds of stuff. So the combination of my father being so welcoming and loving and having memories of, you know, I think the first time I got near him, I was reminded of who I was searching for because he smoked Marlboro cigarettes. And as a child, you know, our first sense is the sense of smell. And so as soon as I smelled the Marlboro cigarettes, I felt like I'd come home. I really did. And when I was a young child, when I was, you know, seven, eight, nine, I would always turn around and look if I walked past someone and smelled Marlboro cigarettes. I could tell you the, the scent in an instant, and I would look and see if it was someone I knew, because wow. that was a scent that I knew. In fact, later, many years later, when I was teaching, I had a student say to me that he was not out in the park smoking, and I said to him, yes, you were, and you were smoking Marlboros. <laughs> oh the look gosh. on his face was like, oh my gosh, how does she know that? But you know, that was such a, a connector for me. Wow. And it it really it really said, This is this is the man I'm looking for. And then, you know, when we were in his home, he poured me a cup of coffee. I didn't tell him how I took the coffee, but he set it in front of me and it had the exact amount of cream and the exact amount of sugar that I would have put in it. I was like, he knows me. That's you know, you know, there's a connection, and and just the the look on his face, you know, I could see looking at him, I could see when my daughter gets her eyes, I could see, I could see who I was, and it was powerful, but I also knew that he was afraid of his current wife and what she would do. And she had literally, he had, you know, was jumping at everything she said. And so he wasn't, quote unquote, allowed to get too close to me. She had already told him that. Mm. And so then, you know, I had, when I found my birth father, when I first called and made that first phone call, I talked to a man and it was not my birth father. It was his son. So then I discovered I had a half-brother, 
And so then his son, at the time when we visited them for the first time, walked in the door at the age of 21. I could see in him similarities to my son. They both played the bass guitar. They they both were, you know, more introverted. He had the same color eyes. It was like, oh my gosh, there's this more and more puzzle pieces, you know, being put together. But his wife really kind of put the stop on us finding a way to connect. We were there for for a weekend. We didn't stay with them. When I say we, I mean my my husband at the time and myself. We stayed in a hotel, and I knew I couldn't actually talk to my birth father because she wouldn't let him talk to me for very long. So I wrote him a long letter, and the next, the day we left, the day we came back home, I got out of the car, and he jumped out of the the car, and he came around, and he gave me a hug, and he said, "You, you know, I do love you. And I handed him the note, and almost like he knew I was going to hand it to him, he just slipped it in his pocket. Because it was like this, almost this sort of connection, this bond that wasn't permitted. (laughs) She wasn't going to have any part of that. So it was like she tolerated us connecting. But the whole time, I remember when my my half-brother walked in the door, and my, my father said, Oh, you look so much alike. And we did. He and I look very much alike. And immediately his wife said, no, he doesn't. He, he looks like my, he looks like my father. Mm-hmm. So there was this negation immediately from the beginning. Mm-hmm. She was um, inserting herself into the whole oh, yeah. thing. Right. Absolutely. Elevating yep. herself. That's really interesting. And it's also interesting too, to hear that, she was on the opposite end of what you were bringing to their front door. You are in search oh, of. Oh, yeah. And possibly yep. her children are in search of, and she might not even know it. And and you yep. are the living embodiment of exactly what she does not want to happen. Yet there exactly. you are. And you've got a massive yeah. connection to this guy who clearly loves yeah. you. It's just, it's mm-hmm. so interesting to hear. And, it, and I feel sorry for her, truthfully, because it sounds like she's scared, yeah. right? She's scared of Absolutely. losing her kids. She's scared of yeah. the reminders of how they got to a place of being in adoption. Because mm-hmm. there's a who am I really question that I think also coincides with the mother who's not, and I'm, I'm making an assumption here and I probably shouldn't, but, you know, for whatever reason, their family was not able to be formed. Like she it sounds like was questioning all of that also and mm-hmm, having finally mm-hmm. sort of raised her children and gotten to a place of comfortability and, and thinking that she has mm-hmm. locked them out of the desire to search. Here you appear at yep. the door having completed your search by yeah. finding her husband. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it kind of, it went downhill from there. <laughs> I can imagine. But, but while it was yeah. on, while you were up high, I mean, it sounds like it was just amazing. This guy, knows you without knowing you, you look like him, yeah. your kid looks yeah. like his. I mean, yeah. that must have been amazing. Yeah, it was wonderful. And I, you know, it's like, oh gosh, it, it, for me, it, for me, it felt like, and, and I, I know this is probably not a very good analogy, but it felt like that, that sensation of having worked on this puzzle for years 
and you finally get that last piece and you put it in and you go, oh, and, and it's like, this, this is what I needed. I needed to find that connection. Yeah. And I, when I was looking for, um, I don't know if, if I can share this or not, but when I was doing the research on adoption and adoptees, because I'm very sometimes analytical and I wanted to know how to do this the right way and let's do some research. And I went and, and got some books out of the library and there was a book on adoption and I took it home and I had this pile of books on my desk and I remember picking up a book and a note fell out of it. And the note said, if you are an adopted child looking for your birth parent, please know that your birth parents have never forgotten you. And it was signed a birth father. I literally fell to the floor and just sobbed. It was just so powerful. And so when I was looking for my birth father, I just, I knew I needed to finish this. I needed to, it was a journey, literally. And I needed to finish this so that I, I could have that, that last puzzle piece. Yeah. And, and it is an accurate analogy, right? Because throughout our lives, sort of trying to understand our identity is a function of putting pieces of the puzzle together, right? Who am yeah, I yeah. sort of physically, right. spiritually, financially, emotionally, whatever the, the pieces yeah. are, you know, you're, yeah. you're constantly trying to put yourself together and stack yourself up in a way that you feel is appropriate. And without the information that is foundational to how you even got to be here as a living person, there will always exactly. be missing puzzle pieces. And, sure. uh, you know, it's literally the reason why I chose my icon for the podcast, because you've got your mm -hmm. heart is there. It's all there, except for this mm -hmm. one, you know, possibly more missing pieces. And it is mm -hmm. a puzzle. And and, mm -hmm. I, and to continue this analogy, especially as for a, appropriate as it is, it sounds like when things went south, you know, when you complete a puzzle and somebody accidentally like comes by and puts a book down on it and, yep. it, and it breaks it apart. <laughs> it sounds like, yep. unfortunately, she slammed her fist in the middle of your puzzle, which is really Absolutely. unfortunate. Can you tell me a little bit about what started the downfall of this relationship that you wanted? Well, I think probably what started it for her is that my once my birth father and I connected, we talked almost every day on the phone. It it really kind of became an obsession, I think. I had lots of questions, and so I began to ask him questions. You know, what does he remember? I mean, my birth mother had taken my sister and I out of the home when we were very little, ages three and five. And she had gone off with some other guy, and my my birth father had no clue where we were. He came home one night from work. He worked as a machinist, and he came home at night, and she had taken us, taken the car, gone to the airport, flew off with his kids. And he just, he fell apart. He told me that he he was drinking. He got into a terrible car accident, ended up in the hospital, current wife was a nurse and nursed him back to health and they ended up getting married. But he fell apart. But he knew that story. He knew those pieces about my birth mother. And he started talking with me on the phone. And so we talked frequently. He would call me. I would talk with him. 
I was overjoyed to be in connection with this person that I had lost so many years ago. And his wife became jealous, to be honest with you. She became very jealous and angry and controlling of him. I mean, she was so controlling of him. And there were times when I would call, I could tell you that she was in the house because he would talk to me differently. Yes. He would, he would not open up. He would be very, you know, reserved. He wouldn't, he wouldn't share that care and that comfort. It was a totally different person, it seemed. Mm-hmm. So she became jealous. And because I started asking questions, and honestly, you know, my, my birth father was my protector. He was, he was the one I was emotionally connected to. And you do, you connect that way when you're very, very young. And so I intuitively, I knew that. And so I began to ask him questions about my history. You know, what, did, what do you know about my birth mother? Why did we leave? What happened? What do you know about my sister? And he admitted to me that that his my mother had been pregnant with her when they met. And he ended up, you know, adopting her as his own. But she was a half-sister. And so then there was another piece that connected, you know. So that relationship ended up feeling so safe that it was like Pandora's box opened and I started having these memories of why I had blanked out when I was five. I had no information when I was five. Well, then those pieces started to come up and these were the darker pieces of that puzzle I was putting together. And so I asked him questions about abuse and things like that. He assured me that it was not him He told me, once he had met with my adoptive parents, he knew that my sister and I had been through trauma. He could tell. My sister was very protective of me when we met our birth father for the first time on the porch when we were seven and nine. And so he knew we'd been through trauma. And he said, you know, maybe there were other daddies in the foster homes that you, you know, maybe it was the man that she ended up with. I don't know, but I'm telling you it wasn't me. So here I was asking all these abuse questions. Well, that was where everything fell apart. Apparently, his wife found out that I had been asking these questions. So he called me one day and he said, I think we need to break this off. I can't talk to you anymore. And that was only six months later. And I'm like, what are you saying? And he said, You're, you said that I abused you. I said, no, I didn't. And he said, you are going to sue me. You're accusing me of incest. And I said, no, I didn't. And then he went through all these bizarre statements. And I said, I just talked to you yesterday. That is not what I said. And then it dawned on me. He was still protecting me because his wife was listening on another phone. Yep. He was setting it up so that she would hear me say and deny that I had said those things because she accused him. She accused him of me coming into his life to sue them. You know, all is scary. This is what she's going to do to you. She's going to ruin our family. You know, all this. I'm the villain. And he set up that phone call for her and also to prove that I did not say those things, but he also made a promise to her that he would not 
call me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he he walked away from the relationship the second time. Damn, that's the worst. I'm sorry. But there's good news. You know, I'm I'm a believer in God. Our God is a redeeming God. And so years later, I was able to stay in touch with my half-brother. And I found out that my birth father had ended up moving to live with them after an earthquake in Southern California. And he was elderly and um, he was, he had Alzheimer's and um, I ended up, I ended up calling his wife and I told her, I said, I'm coming to see my father and I'm not coming to destroy your family and I'm not coming to cause any problems. And I've, given you what you've wanted. I've left you alone and I haven't communicated with you for several years now, but I'm coming to see my father. And so I was able to fly to where they lived and connect with him again. And she was, she was the same. But at that point, I will tell you, I met her daughters And one of them was very anxious to find her own birth parents, and she wanted to know every bit in detail about how I went about it. (laughs) So she was ready to find her birth parents because of my story and the connection. And so when I went to the nursing home to, to see him for the first time, she kept saying, well, you know, he doesn't even know his own son. He's not going to know who you are. And I said, well... We'll see. And I had been praying mightily before I went. And honestly, I don't, I don't know what you believe, but I, God basically assured me, you will be reunited with your father. Mm-hmm. And so I went into the home, and he was in a wheelchair sitting in the front room, and uh, his head was down. And I, I went on that promise of God. And God had been with me the whole time. And so I went up to him. And fortunately, she and her you know, son had walked on down the hall to give me a few moments of privacy. And I leaned down and I took his hand and I said, I said, Dad, it's Cindy. I want you to know that I love you. And he looked up and he took my hand and he kissed it. And he said, oh, yes. And smiled. And I knew in that moment, I heard God say, you have been reunified with your father. Yeah, that's beautiful. Your heart so then, has been so full. Oh, my gosh. I can't even imagine. Yeah. Full. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it really, like I said, it, you know, it's, it is a journey. And, um, and the, and the interesting thing is, you know, like I said, God is a redeeming God. And a couple months later, and I should say that after I I walked away from him in the wheelchair and we were getting in the car, she said to me, he didn't know who you were, was, did he? And I said, actually, I think he did. And then two months later, he passed away. I went back for the funeral. And at the funeral, literally when I walked in to the church, I could hear people gasp because I look so much like my father. And my 
my half-brother invited me to come sit with the family. And it was so tender. It was so sweet. I said, no, I'm fine where I am. And after the funeral, as I was standing there at his coffin, his one of his adopted daughters came up to me, and she put her arm around me. And she said, I want to apologize to you. She said, I hated you for so many years, but I can see that you are really his daughter. Mm. And the irony was that in that family at the funeral, when we were sitting at the service afterwards at the gravesite, I was no longer the baby in the family. I was the oldest. And I put my arm around the daughter who had just apologized to me. And I realized that God was doing this forgiveness piece, this sort of letting go of hate and anger and hurt and resentment and all of that. And it wasn't, it was no longer just my story. It, it was, it was a story of healing, you know, of wholeness. And so it just was, it was a powerful, powerful experience. And I knew, I knew that there was some healing for his wife as well, because in the obituary, she listed my sister and I as his daughters. She did? She did. Wow. Yes. I was yeah. not expecting you to say that. That's incredible. Yeah. And so she, I think she came to the realization because I honored what she had asked for, which was not to insert myself into their family. I, I gave her that. And I wasn't there to, you know, try to become one of them. That was not my agenda. I, I didn't try to influence her daughters to find their birth parents. So there was a level of respect there in some regard. And I think she regretted. I think she regretted what she had done and how her her husband had lost those extra years with me. So, you know, maybe there was some healing for her, too. I hope so. But the healing for you is so much greater than for yeah. anybody else. That's just amazing. I'm so happy that you got those moments and you got that recognition there, mm -hmm. you know, after he passed away. After all she had been through, I imagined Cindy was somewhat interested to know who her birth mother was. But she told me she searched for the woman more for her sister's benefit than for her own. Cindy felt a deep connection to her birth father, so she hoped to locate their birth mother to allow her sister to have a similar experience. Knowing they were half-sisters, she wanted her sister to have a connection too. After visiting her birth father for the first time, she went back to the DMV to try to find the woman. Cindy located a woman that she thought was their birth mother. She ended up contacting the Department of Motor Vehicles, threatening to sue them because she didn't want me to pursue her. And I thought to myself, you know, if I was just some random person, why, why would this woman be so upset? You know, mm -hmm. why, why was there such a big deal? If I was just, it was just an accident. I offered to apologize. I did the whole thing. And the woman at the DMV said, no, she says she does not want you to pursue her. So I dropped it after that. But by then, I knew my backstory. My father, my birth father, had actually said to me on the phone, I know you might want to look for your mom, but I want you to be careful. She could just hurt you more. 
so it turned out that my mother was the primary abuser. My mother was the one who set us up with the abusive stepfather. My mother was the one that caused the problem that created in me a lack of an emotional bond. There was a fear. There was a panic. There was something in me saying, don't look for her. And when he confirmed that by telling me, don't look for her, she could just hurt me more. He knew more than he said. So I dropped it from there. I did find out several years later that she had passed away because I did a search in birth and death records. But there was no there was no bond. There was no reason for me to look for her. It's funny how there's a warning from somebody and either your curiosity gets the best of you and you just have to know anyway or <laughs> you you say, you know what? <laughs> I trust you. You're right. This yep. is the end here. And it's yep. interesting to hear that you were able to hold on to what you had been told and what was in your gut, it sounds like. Yeah. And, and I'm glad yeah. because that, that, that path can be so painful because oh, what yeah. you're ending up doing is you're clawing uphill that mm -hmm. in a way that, and it's a hill that you couldn't be climbing in the first place, perhaps. And once you get right. to the top, like, there is no real top mm -hmm. because you it's always going to be a battle to try to get this person to right. acknowledge you, accept right. you, even speak to you, stop being sort of vitriolic yeah. in their their responses to what you're saying and doing, you know, just it, it can be poisonous in a way that's yeah. unnecessary. But I I respect everybody who has made the attempt to try to give some yeah. give someone an opportunity to not do that because you want to be accepted and you want to be loved and cherished and mm -hmm. sort of at least mm -hmm. acknowledged if nothing else. So mm -hmm. look, I, I'm glad that yeah. you were able to avoid that pain and, and could hold on to, you know, the great things mm -hmm. that your father left you. That's amazing. Yeah. And I think, I think it's important to trust our intuition, to trust that knowing that we have on the inside, you know, for me, it was, it was trusting the direction of God. It was, it was knowing what was to be pursued and what was not to be pursued. Um, because we know, you know, if we trust our intuition, we know when we're, we're, when we're not going the direction we need to go. I mean, we, you know, you get, you get the resistance. There's a reason for that. That's right. There's a reason for everything. Wow. Well, Cindy, thank, thank you, you so much for taking time to be with me today. It was really powerful to hear your connection to your biological father from the scents and smells that attached you to him to the ways that he protected you in ways that you didn't even know were happening. It's just an amazing story. And I'm, I'm really grateful for you for opening up here and sharing it with me. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. Of course. Take care, Cindy. All the best to you. All right. Okay? Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, it's me. Cindy's journey started in foster care and ended up with adoptive parents who loved her and supported her search for her birth parents. I thought it was fascinating that her birth father was who she decided to search for and she felt such a bond and connection when she found him. I wish they had been able to continue their relationship, but our own reunion desires don't always mean everyone else is going to be supportive and the man's wife was proof of that. Cindy ended up being the living embodiment of the man's wife's worst fears and she drove a wedge between them, but their bond wasn't broken. 
I believe he recognized Cindy through the fog of Alzheimer's when she appeared and told him she loved him. Cindy's book is called Once in a Lullaby, My Journey Home. She wrote it so that her grandchildren would understand more of where their grandmother had come from, how she got to be the woman she is today, and to document her piece of the family's history. I hope you're writing down your own story too. The journey you've been on, the experiences you've endured, questions you've answered, and mysteries that remain unsolved are all important components of your story that deserve to be documented. I encourage you to write them all down as they come to you. One day, you might forget parts of how your own story goes. I'm Damon Davis, and I hope you've found something in Cindy's journey that inspires you, validated your feelings about wanting to search, or motivates you to have the strength along your journey to learn. Who am I, really? If you would like to share your adoption journey and your attempt to connect with your biological family, please visit whoamireallypodcast.com slash share. You can follow the show at facebook.com slash really. If the show is meaningful to you, you can support me with a contribution to keep it going on patreon.com slash really. Please subscribe to Who Am I Really on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. It would mean so much to me if you took a moment to leave a five-star rating there. Those ratings can help others to find the podcast too. And you can check out the story of my adoption journey, Who Am I Really? An Adoptee Memoir on Amazon.com. I hope you'll add my story to your reading list.